Good evening, and welcome to Dig This. My name is Tom Levy from the Department of Anthropology here at UCSD. Uh, tonight, we'll be opening with a four-part series on the Bible and archaeology. And this evening, I'm especially pleased to welcome my guest, Professor Richard Elliott Friedman, Professor of Hebrew and Comparative Literature here at the University of California, San Diego. Good evening, Dick. Good evening, Tom. It's great to see you. Dick, you've written quite a few books. Uh, amongst them are Who Wrote the Bible? Your latest one is the commentary on the Torah, uh, all of them with Harper, major publisher. Um, who did write the Bible? Well, whenever people ask me that and they want the easy answer, I always tell them it was James Michener. But the uh, <laughs> problem is then they always say, no, then it would be longer. So uh, then I have to get serious and tell them really that, uh, you know, it's been the central question of Bible scholarship for the last couple of hundred years is trying to figure out who wrote each of the books, when and why. And uh, sometimes it's, it's an easy one-person answer, and sometimes it's, it's not so easy. It's a long process of many parts coming together and many editors assembling it, and so you get this amazingly rich collection of the text. How, how, what sort of tools do you use to, to analyze and try to figure, figure it out? The, uh, it's everything from uh, linguistic tools to look at a text and say, well, look, this is written in 9th century BCE Hebrew, but this is written in 5th century BCE Hebrew, and doing it from the dating of the, the language to uh, looking at references in the text to what people refer to, so when did they live, how would they have known that, to uh, the different terms and language people use, it's uh, to archaeological evidence. It's it's uh, to me the the rule is anything that sheds light on the text is fair. Well, before we get you tell us who did write the Bible, w what goes into becoming a qualified biblical scholar? I mean, to to make these judgments like like you do. Well, a biblical scholar has to do. Uh, we have to run a, a gauntlet for a few years in order to to be allowed to be uh, to enter at the table. It's uh, for our own doctoral students here, like as for me, when I was a, a doctoral student, the, the toughest part is probably all the languages you have to do. How, how many? Well, we require seven or eight, um, don't we? I think it's... We, uh, we, we have a Hebrew, Aramaic, Akkadian, Ugaritic, Greek, modern French, German, and Hebrew, Little English. Uh, whatever uh, you need to do your work. And uh, then they all have to do some archaeology. A fair number of them uh, go with you and uh, get, get dirty uh, as part of their training. And uh, it's historical training. It's literary training. Uh, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary uh, gauntlet we run to, uh, to get to do the job. Now, in, in, your, uh, in your book, Who Wrote the Bible, you present a very detailed argument about who you think uh, wrote each particular section. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That book focused especially on the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And uh, part of it was giving the history of the subject, which is just an extraordinary history. It's like a great detective story looking for the pieces over the years. And I, I wrote it like a detective story. People said afterwards that you know, in the reviews and all that it read like, like a mystery. And uh, when I was on the Ed, I was on the Larry King show and, and, and he said, oh, well, I might win an Edgar for that 
book, this prize for the mystery fiction. So I got all excited. That had never occurred to me. I just thought I was writing a book, and, and I didn't win an Edgar, so he was wrong anyway. But, <laughs> but the sense of the book was, was, was this, this, uh, this flow of picking up clues, different scholars uh, from uh, all different religious backgrounds, left and right, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, uh, everyone in this uh, search for the answers to these questions. It wasn't about, is it from God or not, which isn't scholarship, that's a matter of faith, but it, it was, who were the specific human beings who wrote the stories that they did, and why did they tell the, the stories the way they did? Do we have names for those, those authors? I got to a couple of names. Sometimes uh, we just have uh, symbols that we use, the famous uh, letters J, E, P, and D that stand for texts. But uh, the authors themselves, uh, we may never know. I, I suggested that, uh, that uh, uh, Ezra, the, uh, the man of the book of uh, Ezra, was the, the final editor who put the whole five books of Moses together. I could be wrong if it wasn't Ezra, then it was, uh, you know, Ezra's next-door neighbor, somebody who was in the same time, the same place, and same sort of job and, and access to the same texts, most important. Now, that would have been like the 5th century BCE? 5th century BCE, yeah. And by then, the five books of Moses are completed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but most of it written vastly earlier than that. This is a challenge for uh, fundamentalist Christians or Orthodox Jews whose belief is, has always been that it was Moses who wrote all of the five books of Moses. And uh, there's always been a, a separation between traditional biblical scholarship and critical biblical scholarship. So it's not a small point. And uh, it's a point that we always try to present very sensitively to students and lecturers. And all. We're not out to create uh, faith crises or destroy anybody's life, but to let everybody know what the evidence is so that they can learn and make a choice. How do the traditionalist uh, believers receive your work? I mean, are you a target or, or do they appreciate your research? Actually, in, it, when the book, when Who Wrote the Bible first came out, there were a few unkind quotes in the press, but for the most part, when I have contact with uh, uh, Orthodox rabbis or uh, uh, fundamentalist or evangelical Christian ministers, we're, we're very courteous and we, we get along with each other and, and, uh, and I've sat at the same table and studied with them and uh, I, I teach and learn and we understand there are lines that, that we don't cross but uh, it's, not, it's not without lack of respect for learning. I think it's very unusual, and it didn't have to be this way. And in some places, it is much more harsh. But really, I've been very lucky. Now, of those five books, what do you, which one do you think is the earliest, and why? It's not that any one book is the earliest, because there are uh, individual source texts, the original things that became those five books, that run through all of them. So there'll be pieces of texts that run through Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that are very early, and then there are other parts of those very same books that are much, much later. So that when you're reading the five books of Moses, it's like going through this time machine. You're, you're going back reading earlier and earlier texts. So in uh, Who at the Bible put a little chart at the back showing where I thought each verse belongs so that a person could just read first the earliest layer of the text and then the second layer and the next layer and watch all the pieces get stitched together. I've done that many times. It's an extraordinary thing. It's like, uh, it's like when you see a, a slow motion film of a flower 
opening up. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've watched the, uh, the books of the Bible becoming the books of the Bible. It's an amazing experience. Hmm. Now, at the beginning of our chat, you mentioned that uh, scholars can date Hebrew by the century almost, like a 9th century B.C., an 8th century style, and so on. We don't have that in the Hebrew Bible. What, what, what do we have? What's left for you to look at, and how do you actually date it? Well, part of it is, is very fancy linguistic stuff that's done by people you know, more advanced than I am in that, but it's a, uh, a process where you can see the way language develops. That uh, it, It's not just that anybody listening to us can, can hear that we're not speaking the same English as, as Shakespeare, but uh, a linguist could figure out that our English came after Shakespeare's and not the other way around. And uh, so you can look at texts and see stages in the development of Hebrew and see what came later than what. I oversimplified a bit when I could say, we well, can read a, a sentence and say, okay, ninth century. It's not as simple as that. Mm -hmm. But it is a process where you can place everything in order. And then is where the archaeology of it comes in when you... When we look at this and we see what appear to be the earliest stages of biblical Hebrew, that does match with the Hebrew of inscriptions that we find from you know, Iron Age uh, Israel. And when we uh, look at uh, the later stages of biblical Hebrew, that seems closer to the Hebrew that you'd find at Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we do have independent outside confirmation that we've got this right. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you, you brought up archaeology. Um, how does archaeology inform biblical scholars today? Well, look, if you want to know what happened in the biblical world, you have only two sources. You have the Bible itself and you have archaeology. There isn't a third thing until we arrive at a time machine or something. You, know, you only have the text and, and what you guys uh, dig up. So, uh, you know, we can't work without it. Uh, sometimes there's a term in a text and we don't know what it means. And then you uncover either an inscription that, that clears up what the word means or uh, uncover the thing that the, the, the word refers to. Sometimes it's, it's a historical reference. Uh, in, in the biblical text, uh, it says during the reign of uh, King Hezekiah around 700 BCE, the... Uh, the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib came and he destroyed cities of Judah and he surrounded Jerusalem and it describes the events that happened. And then archaeologically, as you well know, we, we excavate uh, in Assyria. The, 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 I would say the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time come from there and, and includes uh, the prism inscription of Sennacherib where he describes his his victories. He said, oh yes, I went to Jerusalem and I surrounded King uh, Hezekiah the Jew in, his, in Jerusalem, his royal city, and, and there's the whole inscription and it's sitting there now in the, in the British Museum for all to see. And, uh, you know, it's not always as good as that. I mean, we've never gotten, uh, you know, Moses loves Zipporah or Abraham loves Sarah carved in a rock, but, but you know, you, you, you go for the best you can. And uh, sometimes it, it sheds light in a positive way in the text. Sometimes it makes us question the text, but it makes the text more uh, real. And sometimes not even these individual, the specific discoveries, but the, 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 the broader task of archaeology, which is really capturing the biblical world. You know, such a, one of our students, uh, Michael Homan, who studied both archaeology with you and biblical scholarship with, with uh, the Bible faculty, 
I ended up writing books uh, capturing parts of the biblical world, what people drank, or what, what kind of structures they lived in. And it makes the Bible be uh, real. It puts uh, flesh and bones on the text and, and, uh, in a way that's, that's not as specifically definable as a thing like finding an inscription from Sennacherib saying, oh, yeah, I was in Jerusalem that day. But, it, but it's, uh, in a way, it's, it's even richer and more valuable. Well, why is it that um, the major um, professional organization, the SBL, Society of Biblical Literature, and ASOR, the American Schools of Oriental Research, which represents the archaeologists that work in the Holy Land, they used to have meetings together every year, and then about seven years ago or so, they split. And so the archaeologists don't meet consistently together with the biblical scholars. Do you, do you know why this is, we're, we're going through this fragmentation? I, I suspect that that's just the times, that, <clears throat> that the same thing has happened in, in medicine and other areas of history and most of the sciences, that everybody is getting more and more specialized and you, you do your thing. You know, if you're an MD, who's, you're, I, I'm an orthopedist who does left knee, I don't do the right knee. And, and uh, let alone biblical scholarship and, and archaeology, which, as you know, takes such an, an extraordinarily long amount of time, of, of heavy work to just to master one, that uh, the days when, when people could master both are, have been nearly uh, at an end uh, in the generation of my teachers. Well, uh, you, you were at teachers. Harvard, right? Yeah. Who, and who? Well, there, my teacher was, was G.E. Wright and, and Frank Cross. I mean, G.E. Wright was, was uh, maybe the most distinguished American uh, biblical archaeologist of his time, but he was also the, the great biblical Old Testament theologian. And a lot of people, well, how can you be a theologian and an archaeologist at the same time? But, but in his day, you could do it. And uh, as his teacher, Albright, uh, the, the founder of our whole American school of biblical and archaeological studies, uh, he, was, he was able to, to do it all. And they, but these men were giants. And there's only a handful today, I think, who can do both. But uh, I mean, that's not, that, in a way, that's sidestepping your question. Everything I'm saying, that's a reason why we should all meet together all the time and talk to each other. It's not a, time, a reason why, why we should fragment. But I suspect that's the natural course of things that, that uh, first in early days of field, there are these giants who can do everything. Then it splits where each one of us does left knee, right knee. And then there's a point where we, we all come back together and realize that, that it's this whole, it's only through these bodies of, of, of people, the organizations where, where we talk to each other, that, uh, that we really get anywhere. Well, we seem to be doing that here at UCSD through the Judaic Studies program, where archaeologists and biblical scholars work closely together where are the best places to study um, the Bible and archaeology in the United States today? Well, I guess it would be only the places that we could name, like UC San Diego, where you have both a, a full Bible faculty, which means not just one person, because if you're going to be a student of the Bible, you don't want to hear only one person's view. Uh, so a group of, of biblical scholars and a group of archaeologists. And, uh, and UCSD stands out that way, uh, Penn State stands out that way, Harvard stands out that way. And we could just name you know, a Chicago. couple more, uh, Chicago, uh, Duke, where, there, where there's both Bible faculty and archaeology faculty, where a student can concentrate in Bible but still spend summers on an excavation and, and learn the ground as well. Well, I think um, today in uh, biblical archaeology and biblical studies, 
there's a huge riff going on, a huge uh, argument uh, between what they call biblical minimalists and biblical maximalists. Could you speak to that a little bit? What does that mean? Yeah, well, first, I mean, I hate those terms, as many of us do. Yeah, yeah, well, you're forgiven. Uh, I mean, often uh, when some scholars propose a new idea, they'll they'll seek a a title for their idea, and that would mean everybody who disagrees, which is like the other 90% of the field, is the non-that, you know, we're we're the the Jones guys and the alternatives are the non-Jones. In this case, uh, this term minimalist, uh, developed as, as if it's, it's a school of thought or something like that, and it's not. It's a, a group of scholars distributed uh, mostly in Europe, but some in the United States as well, who um, have thrown the, uh, the question into disarray so that it's no longer between critical scholars and traditional scholars, the way you and I talked about 10 minutes ago, but rather it's between the the traditional and critical biblical scholars on one side and a group on, on the other side who says uh, it's all very late, it's all made up. The Bible's the, all made up. Virtually. That, that, uh, I mean, I overstated some, but, but it means not only, forget Adam and Eve, forget Noah, uh, forget anyth- anyone in the, the book of uh, Genesis being historical. Uh, for them, forget Moses or an Exodus. Uh, I mean, th- about, I may or may not David? Ag- but no King David, no, no King, King Saul, no King Solomon, and, and virtually the whole of the, the, the history of the kings of, of Israel and Judah through the Bible is, is regarded as uh, invented. Invented is the polite word that they use. Why, they why, would they, why would they say invented? Why would the biblical minimalists Well, different use that reasons are, are given for that, uh, and, and so I want to be very careful. You don't want to characterize these different people who hold the, the, these, these sorts of views. Uh, all by one motivation. Uh, in some cases, it's uh, their views about the contemporary Middle East, and they're reading it back into biblical world and saying, basically, the Jews don't have a historical biblical root in, in the land. Do you, can you give an example of that? I mean, from the biblical minimalists, how they use the present to to interpret the past. Well, it would be saying something like uh, that period of Ezra, the, the period when in the Persian Empire in the 5th century BCE, um, Jews arrive in the land, they build the temple, they, they establish communities, and, uh, and in this view they, they would say, well, that's when the whole Bible all those old stories about David and Moses and all are made up. It's these Jews arriving in this period and they're making up the whole thing so that they can claim they had a history in the land when really oh, they had no history so like in the they, land. They, they took over the land of the Canaanites or something yeah. like that? Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's, I would say, an unfortunate playing of modern politics into our field where it has no place. Now, sometimes even for wrong motives, people can come to correct facts. So, I mean, this doesn't prove that they're wrong, the fact that some of them have a motive that I, that I find questionable, and there may be others who hold this view who don't hold that motive. And, I, you know, I can't say anybody who disagrees with me must be, you know, the, the evil and an anti-Semite or something like that. that, that that's not what this is about. But uh, in the end, it comes down to facts. And, and uh, what I criticize in, in, in these people is they've simply never taken on 
the, all the evidence that got us somewhere else in the first place. It's okay to come and propose a new model, but you've got to say, okay, well, how do you deal with all the evidence of the old model? When, when you and I were sitting here a minute ago talking about how something is written in 9th or 8th or 7th century BCE Hebrew, they can't come along and say, well, well this was made up by some people in the 5th or 4th century, or even later they'll say uh, BCE. Uh, it's just not possible. Well, how do they deal with something like the, the now famous Tel Dan inscription, <clears throat> which was discovered in 1993, not so long ago, and it says House of David on it. What, how do they deal? And it's written in, well, tell us about that. How well, one it? of the, uh, you know, the, I'll use the word too, the so-called minimalists, uh, as long as we make this little gesture whenever we say minimalists. You can do that. Or, or on television, this gesture. Minimalists, right. they, uh, in, one, uh, you know, sat in a room with me and, uh, and other biblical scholars and, and said, um, that uh, he didn't think that the uh, inscription said House of David, which in Hebrew is Beit David. He said that must be, it must be Beit Daud, and it's the name of a, a place, the House of Daud. And we said, well, what place is that? Where, where is that? And he said, well, it's a hitherto unknown place, but it, now we know that it, it, it Beit Daud. And then when a, a second portion of that inscription was found a year later, that uh, made it very specific. It was a reference to the name of this king of the house of David, and and uh, and then this this group said uh, members of the, this community who hold this view said, "Oh yes, well that was very convenient. Right when we showed it was the Beit Daud inscription, not the Beit David inscription. You conveniently find another piece, uh, so it must be that the whole thing is is a forgery." They said so. I mean, they, I mean there's they, nothing they, you can do if people they, don't they want. They accused uh, Professor Avram Biran of the Hebrew Union College of, for, of forging it. I don't know if they say he specifically is the forger or if somebody else forged it, put it there for him to find, and 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 he was uh, fooled by this. But I mean, what can I say? I, within what two weeks after that that stone was pulled out of the ground, I held it in my my hand. And, you, were, uh, you were part of our field school. Yeah, I was, I was in Jerusalem that summer and, and, you know, I read the story in the New York Times and two weeks later it was in my hands. Uh, and uh, it's no forgery. <laughs> That's it's a, an, extraordinary, an extraordinary discovery. And it is, I mean, right, it's the, it's the equivalent of finding Moses loves Zipporah carved in a rock. Here you had House of David carved in a rock. And uh, uh, they they don't want a David, so they're not going to have a David. Well, our, our time is running to an end, and uh, I'd just like to discuss a little bit. I think this is a topic you've been thinking about. You're going to write a book about it, and that is, what, what is the relevance of biblical studies for today? Well, look, uh, if any subject isn't academic in the, you know, in quotes like this, definition of the word uh, academic, it's, it's uh, the Bible. Uh, I, I realize that, uh, that I'm different from my colleagues. I'm in the literature department at UCSD where, where Latin, French, Greek, Hebrew, Chinese, Japanese are, are all are in the same department with me. But I know that my colleagues get different questions from what I do and they get different responses from their students. And, and me talking to you a moment ago about trying to be careful that I don't want to give my students faith crises. I mean, my, my colleagues who teach Shakespeare and, and, and uh, you know, French literature have less of a concern about giving their students a, uh, 
a faith crisis, you know, because then they'd say, well, you know, uh, Ham- there was no Hamlet. Oh, my God, there was no <laughs> Hamlet. You know, whereas if you say, you know, there was no Moses, there was no David, now you're, you're, you're touching people. And uh, one could argue that, that, that Dostoevsky is greater prose than the prose of the Bible, but nobody is uh, changing their, their life view on uh, abortion or homosexuality or capital punishment or the Middle East. Uh, based on, on uh, Dostoevsky. And, and you could say that, that uh, Tolstoy's, uh, that Anna Karenina is, is more artful writing than, than, than portions of uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the fact is, when you check into a hotel room, it's, it's Ezra and Nehemiah that are in the drawer, not Anna Karenina. And uh, the reason why the Bible is different is because it's the Bible. You know? 2,000 years of people's feelings about it change it. And changes the way I have to teach it. Uh, even in state university, like the University of California, we're not representing the point of view of any church or anything like that. But we understand that, that our students out there, of all the backgrounds, religious and not religious and anti-religious and deeply religious and reverent and irreverent, that all of them come to the Bible uh, less neutrally than they come to uh, Hamlet or the Brothers Karamazov. Have you ever gotten in trouble with uh, your students? I know you lecture to some of the largest classes in the hundreds here at UCSD in the humanities. Have you ever stirred something up through your views of, the, of analysis? It could be I'm, I'm doing that and the students aren't telling me. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, in 26 years here, I've rarely... Uh, had anything like a, a quarrel with a student or a student, you know, angry hollering or stomping out of class or, or anything like that. And uh, I think it comes down to just the way you, you present it, mm-hmm. that, uh, that they understand that I'm, I'm not, you know, the enemy. Uh, and uh, I understand what it's like for a religious student the first time they encounter critical study of the Bible because my teacher who introduced it to me had been a, a, a deeply religious Baptist minister who discovered all this critical stuff when he went to do his PhD in Bible. And it did change his life and he went through it all and, and so he was telling me of, of this sort of thing when I was just a college student myself. So the last thing I want to do is, is do that to a, a college student. We have time for one last question and I'd just like to ask What's the future of biblical studies and archaeology in one, one minute? You know, in a way, we touched on it already when we, we talked about the field fragmenting and then coming back together, uh, both what I'd hope for the field and what I, I really think is what's going to happen in the field is precisely that kind of uh, coming back together. That, uh, right, there aren't enough hours in a lifetime to be a biblical scholar and an archaeologist, except for very few people. But there is enough time for every biblical scholar to pay attention to archaeology, to get on the site, to uh, sit in a a room like this and talk to an archaeologist and uh, learn from each other. And there's time for an archaeologist. You know, you're not always in the field. There's there's time to to sit with me and have a coffee and and learn from each other and to do seminars together and... uh, and meet together and talk. Well, Dick, I'd like to thank you very much and uh, hope you'll come back. Uh, My guest this evening has been Professor Richard Elliott Friedman, 
who holds the Katzen Chair in Jewish Civilization here at UCSD. My name's Tom Levy, and we'll see you again.